I'm your host, Stanley Collins, and this is The Seeds of Black Lily, an audio documentary exploring Philadelphia and black music at the turn of the century. Part of what made that moment so special at the turn of the century in Philadelphia was that Black Lily was like a microcosm of the broader arts community. You could see it on the radio. You could see it with new technologies being introduced and how artists were using them. But you could also see all of these things happening alongside the open mic. I spoke with a few of the people that helped document that moment in the city and their varying uses of media. Up first, we'll hear from Michael Dennis, better known as Mike D. He's a filmmaker from Philly, and along with his partner, Daryl DeBrest, they were instrumental in recording Black Lily open mics and doing feature films on some of the artists. My name is Michael Dennis, and uh, along with Daryl DeBrest, uh, I was one of the video guys that would come down every Tuesday night to the five spot and, and capture the magic of the Black Lily. Ultimately, we got a grant from WYBE-TV to do the first and only documentary about the Black Lily called Jazzy Fat Nasties in Process. I, you know, at the time, I never felt comfortable in the space. I wasn't an artist. I was very introverted. You know, Daryl was the extrovert. He was the one that would go backstage and film with them and have drinks with them and things like that. I was just showing up, capturing the footage and going home, just geeked out, nerdy Mike, you know, and making making the work, you know. But, but you know, over time, you know, when, when you're able to, you have a week to, I mean, nowadays there's no, there's no week. People just film stuff and instantly you see it. But, you know, you have, you have a week to find the story and tell it and, and give somebody back a take, you know, and I I did that repeatedly with, with Kindred, with John Legend, Jasmine, you know, I was always, because of, because, and I, I guess you touched on that earlier, you know, I have a deep love and appreciation for artists, and black blackness and, and, and music, you know, so this, the Black Lily was, was a wheelhouse for me you know, I didn't realize at the time. I thought I was just there out of love doing a job, but I didn't realize that I was also developing my craft the same way that the people on stage were. It never occurred to me until years later, wow, this was where I was honing my craft. I, I thought I was just showing up and doing something, you know, because because it needed to be done, you know, and I, I was the best qualified person you know and to this day it still frustrates me when people film stuff and i mean I, i'm still i still hate the portrait i'm like right, well, just film landscape you know but you know there'll be there'll be people at shows and they they want to capture their experience of the show you know so it's okay for them to have a drink in one hand and have their camera up and film and then cut it off halfway through you know, for me, it's like, how do you translate that experience into um, something that stands the test of time? So, you know, on our best nights, and you know, and not and not be intrusive. You know, so on on our best nights, 
I think you really get a feeling of what it was like to be there. That was the intention, to position the camera in a place where it wasn't dominating, but, but feeling as if it was part of where the, um, like you were, you were part of the audience, you know, so. I can talk about the vibe, you know, was, was definitely um, generational. Like if, if, it, if it's 20 year cycles, for culture to re reinvigorate itself, the early, the late '90s and early 2000s was a rediscovery of the 1970s. So you had a lot of that Afrocentric vibe happening in all the major cities throughout the United States. But in Philadelphia, that locks in even more because we have such a strong legacy for music with Gamble and Huff. You know, so many um, artists or people that turned out to be artists in our current generations, they have family members that were part of that Gamble and Huff crew or, or make, put out records back in the 60s on any of a gazillion independent record labels that existed here in Philadelphia. You have to understand Philadelphia was sort of like a music center. You know, we had our own record row. Like, so you, each prior to the dismantling of black radio and the homogenization of American culture, every city had its own sound, you know? So in Los Angeles, you had RPM records. In Detroit, it was Motown. Chicago, Curtis Mayfield ruled the roost. New York, it was the Brill Building sound in Atlantic Records. And in Philadelphia, um, it was the Gamble and Huff Philly International sound in the 70s, you know, so, and Stacks in Memphis. So, you, so that, that, those seeds that were planted are now coming back through the children of those people that were listening to that music, people digging into their parents' record collections or, um, rediscovering fashion from that time period. Mike D. brings up a good point. With the passage of the Telecommunications Act of 1996, private media companies were allowed to nearly monopolize markets, making fewer locally run radio stations. And radio is a key institution across the history of black music. Disc jockeys, radio personalities, program directors, and countless others help shape the sonic experience for listeners and serve as a critical space for community affairs. While Black Lily was increasing in popularity around the city and the region, it hadn't quite reached the radio yet. That is, until Tiffany Bacon came along with her radio show, Inner City, on Philadelphia's Power 99. She was instrumental in introducing many of the acts you would see at Black Lily to a wider audience via her show. I spoke to Tiffany about her show and how it came about and what it was like to break new music and a bunch more. My name is Tiffany Bacon. I am a radio personality, an actress, costume designer, creator. I got an internship at Fox News, which turned into uh, a job. So I was a production assistant at Fox down at Fourth Market. 
um, and working with folks down there, I made some fast friends and we started going to Silk City. On Monday nights, King Britt used to spin and have a, a party and it was so much fun. I would hear about other events and a lot of that started with uh, RTI because we would always do live remotes. Um, so we were always at Zanzibar Blue and then we would be at Warm Daddy's. So Zanzibar Blue used to be located at 12th and Pine and when they left there it became a club called Wilhelmina's. So now we're talking about like 94, 95-ish. And that was the place where folks would just go on a Friday or Saturday night and you would hear house music, you would hear hip hop and R&B. And we would just like, we would just go in there and live, <laughs> you know, push the furniture back. Uh, she had like red velvet walls or something like that. And the sister who owned it went to Temple. So there was that familiarity. Um, starting to see people I went to school with do other things in the city, own stuff, run stuff, you know, put put events together. And that was just the beginning of, of seeing that. By the time, um, by the time 96, 97 rolled around, around the same time that Love Jones was released, the film, there were various poetry spots popping up around the city and I would just hear about them through friends who'd been there or maybe there was an ad you know something that we read on on uh, on WRTI or something like that and I started to go check them out um and then that became a regular thing for me like just downtime I would go to the Poe Jazz series of Warm Daddies when it was a front market and just sit and soak up the atmosphere and just love it fell in love with it and that would be something that I like to do. That was my grown woman thing to do. And I would go by myself. Sometimes I would go with friends, but mostly I would go to all of the events alone. Um, and that was like really the beginnings of it. So I was already participating in the scene long before my show came around. Um, and my show Inner City debuted on my birthday, February 7th, 1999. So by then, like, there were even more spots popping up around Philly with live poetry, live music, sometimes a dance party after. And it was it was just a real cool, sophisticated, vibey spot. Like Philly was a vibe spot. I got an internship at Fox News. There was always music. Live music was always a component. Um, for the movement to happen, there were there were a few main components. One is you needed a venue. And at that time, there were lots of venues in Philly. Now you have to think about like that mid late 90s time period, the music scene in Philly was popping, popping. Like it didn't matter what kind of music you were into, there was some place to go to hear it in Philly. So whether it was a hip hop set, straight hip hop set, or the beginnings of what was called neo soul set, or jazz. Um, if you were in the house music, you just wanted to dance the night away. There were little ducky spots, as we like to say, all around the city where you can go. And, and that was the thing, like there was live music was, was always the driving force. We're a music town. Um, poetry and everything else would be like packaged together because it just fit. It just it just fit, so it just happened. And 
there were literally in most parts of town whether it was West Philly Roxborough, Maniunk um, North Philly Center City for sure <laughs> Center City was whoo Center City was like really it, 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 it was nightlife it was the it was the best in nightlife and the thing was the word was getting out so people would come down from New York usually it was us going to New York because they stay open all night in Philly we go to bed like 2 o'clock I'm gonna see y'all I'm out but in New York if you, if you had a little extra in you you'd go to New York and like hang out for the rest of the night but New Yorkers were coming down here like what y'all what's this okay oh y'all doing it like this Philly oh okay I see you it was great it was really great there was always so there was a young lady who I was very cool with um we used to hang out we appreciated each other's hustle she worked at RTI at the same time I was there during my grad program she got to power 99 first um I was still in the grad program I was on RTI middays I was still working at Fox News at night a few days a week and I just got, um, well, I got hired as a promotions assistant for B101, which for me, that was a power move. I said, let me get in the door so I can show them what I can do so I can get on commercial FM, RTI's public radio. And I wanted to be on commercial FM to make, you know, lateral moves or other transitions by getting commercial FM on my resume. So I started working on air at B101 overnights, Friday night into Saturday, midnight to six, Saturday into Sunday, midnight to six. So that was me on B101 spinning most music, less talk. Uh, <laughs> like Whitney Houston and the folks that sang the Friends song. I can't even remember the name of the group. Uh, you know, I'm, that, that's what I'm spinning. So Monica, who was the friend I was telling you about at Temple. She was the producer for Carter and Sanborn. And Power had a new operations manager. Her name was Helen Little. And they were looking for female talent. So Monica bigged me up to Helen, talked me up. And then uh, she called me and was like, hey, look, Tiff, we're looking for female talent. I told my new boss about you. You were the first person I thought of. You need to send her a tape like right away so at first I'm thinking power 99 I grew up with power 99 like I listened to Carter and Sanborn every single morning they got me through high school and before that it was BJ in the morning got me through middle school you know so the the, the prospect of being on power 99 was like super exciting but it was also scary because I'm like I need to make a tape that they would find interesting and I work at B101 so not the same music so I'm like I mean I'll try it but can they hear me can they can they hear how I would fit with me spinning Michael Bolton so I just <laughs> Michael Bolton Biggie not in the same category but that's what my my demo tape had a whole lot of Michael Bolton in and when used it on it um but yeah I guess she heard something in my voice. So they called me in for an interview and the interview went great. But thankfully I heard from Helen Little. So she called and I got the job. 
at power. Um, it was amazing to be on the station I grew up listening to. After that first year, I felt like I wanted to leave, not because it was bad, but I felt like I didn't fit. <laughs> um, like what I vibed to was different. Everybody was great. Like I did not have a bad experience with anybody on staff. Like it's still to date the best job I ever had next to RDI. I think they're like neck and neck. They were the best job I ever, jobs I ever had. Um, but I felt like there was something that I offered that doing weekends wasn't bringing out of me. And I didn't know what that was yet. So, um, I was at, I'm skipping around in the story, but I'll get kind of to the point. <laughs> I was at one of the Po Jazz nights at Warm Daddy's, which I often went to. And I was in the back of the room and I just remember scanning the room. Something about that night made me absorb everything from the smell of the food coming from the bar area, how crowded the bar was, how you literally had to squeeze past people when you came in the door. Um, the, the seating kind of off to the back in the corner, the little stage that kind of came out uh, of the corner, like it wasn't a flush across the room stage. It kind of came out from the corner. It was not a very big stage. Um, watching the arpeggio jazz ensemble perform, hearing various poets go up doing their pieces. And I just absorbed that whole moment. And I thought, I wish I could capture this and put it on the radio. Everybody else in Philly needs to feel this moment. And that's literally when the show, show was born. In that moment, I took a napkin. I wrote down just like catchphrases and words. And I started I started a skeleton um, outline of what the show would sound like. I'm like, how can I get this? What I'm seeing, what I'm feeling, what I'm hearing. How can I get this on air? So... The journey was after that, how did I get it on air? Well, a couple things had to work. First, I put a, a, I put a proposal together, very professional, because I was trained to be very professional. So I put a proposal together. I gave it to Helen and she was like, no. I was like, wait, it's great. I promise everybody's gonna love this. And she flat out said no, because I mean, I had it on paper. Then a guy, um, a friend of mine who worked in production, Greg is his name. He said, you can't expect people to read your vision. You have to let them hear it. You should make a demo. I was like, that makes so much sense. <laughs> he said, I know a poet, because um, I didn't know any of the poets personally to reach out and call. He said, I know a poet who, you know, who can come in and you could just record her. So my concept was playing all these songs that created a vibe and they might not all be hits right now, but they were hits at some point. These were songs that people knew, loved and vibed to, even if they weren't number one on the charts. They might have been number 10 on the charts, but people still talk about these songs. They create a mood. So I put a playlist together. Um, the first song in that playlist was Cool Like That um, by Diggable Planets. And the whole show kind of like wrapped around the energy of that song. And I had Danko, who was the poet, he introduced me to, you know, read a piece like after every third song or something. And I did the show with our usual 
stop clock. You know, after so many songs, we take a commercial break and we do certain things. So I followed our regular clock. So it sounded like Power 99. Unbeknownst to me, <laughs> which is interesting. Again, like I said, I'm writing a book about this whole thing. Um, at the same time, I'm putting this demo together. Power 99 introduces somebody to the station to work with Carter and Sam Boone. That person was Wendy Williams. So they bring Wendy to power. Um, <laughs> the beat has, you know, talent over there now. Um, Dee Lee, who is a local uh, comedian, whom I knew, like I said, all roads go back to Temple. I knew Dee Lee from guys that I worked with at Temple. We had a production group. Um, and he was friends of those guys. So I knew him from my temple days. He was on a show on the beat. They brought D. Lee over and he was doing like a comedy based show on Sunday nights on Power 99 from nine to, at nine o'clock. When they decided to let um, Carter and Sanborn were leaving, Wendy was staying. And they created the dream team with Wendy, um, Tony Richards, and Dee Lee. That move was going to happen in the new year, which was 1999. When that move would happen in the new year, that meant Sunday nights would be freed up. I gave Helen my tape and she thought, well, we have a spot open. She gave me that Sunday night all because of the move with Wendy <laughs> to the to um, the folks moving D. Lee from Sunday to be the dream team with Wendy. Now, she was already on with Carter and Sanborn, but they left. This new team is in. So it's Wendy in the dream team and me on Sunday night. That's how that spot opened. And let me be very, very clear. The only way a show like mine, or any specialty show, mine was considered a specialty show, the only way we could remotely be successful is if the sales team could sell it. And thankfully, I had at least three people in the sales team. When they heard the idea, when they heard the demo, they were like, oh, absolutely, I can sell that. And they were very clear, I can sell this. You don't even need to worry because at the end of the day, the station's going to want to make money. Um, so, yeah, they they felt very confident they could sell it. So awesome. Uh, there was some skepticism in the beginning about would the Power 99 listener take to my show? Again, I'm not necessarily playing hits of the day. There was no biggie in the show. There was not an ounce of bad boy in my show. My show, not an ounce. And that's not a diss. I'm not saying that as a diss. I'm saying that as bad boy dominates like five slots in the hour. This is one or three hours in the week. You're not going to hear it. <laughs> um, you're going to hear um, Diggable Planets. You're going to hear Most Deaf. You're going to hear Miseducational Lauren Hill, damn near the whole album. You're going to hear D'Angelo, Maxwell, and a whole lot of local artists that nobody knows yet, which was for me the, the key because I knew for a fact by being at these venues, there's so much talent out here. If we just put 
the music that's being played in the clubs on the radio. There is no way people won't like it. It's too good. And the folks inside, um, you know, who were who are on staff, a lot of them just didn't know what was going on. And I'm like, well, I'm here to tell you I'm out in these streets. I know I know what's happening. And it's fantastic. It's like if you know that Love Jones is a hit, there's no way you can deny the music that's coming out of Philly right now. And that was my thought. Thankfully for Helen Little, she let me try it. Um, and I don't remember when exactly I felt like it took off, but I know when I saw the impact, um, the show was having and when the whole station saw it, like all the decision makers, the minute that we had sisters. So we used to do this event every year called sisters. It was a big convention focused on women, focused on black women. Um, and it was really amazing we would have like musical acts from like big musical acts and there was lots of like booths and like activities it it was it was really a great event so um god rest his soul don juan banks who used to do sunday morning inspirations the gospel show on sunday morning he had his own stage so he would bring in gospel artists and so i petitioned for myself i mean my show was only a few months old but i said i mean my show is kind of natural for having a stage at sisters can i have a stage they weren't really sure how i was going to be received so they paired me up with the literacy corner so it was like the literary corner and the nubian cafe which is what i called my section <laughs> um so i said look i'm featuring new artists on the show i'll have an open mic like for a good portion of the day um and they only got one artist for my corner that artist was speech from arrested development arrested development had folded so he was a solo artist at this time and he had a he had a new music out um the thought at the time from some on staff was that nobody's going to want to hear him he hasn't had a hit in years on the morning of sisters I was told before we opened the doors that there was a line and we were at the convention center. There was a line around the block for people to come in and they were all there to be at the open mic. At that moment I said, "Oh, people are listening. If there's a line around the block and they want to get on the open mic, people are listening." Um, at that moment that's when I was told, "Oh yeah, the Nubian Cafe will be back next year. <laughs> you don't have to worry. <laughs> that is most definitely coming back. And I looked around like, wow. I didn't have any other doubts from anybody else about the show at that point. Um at there, you know, they would give me ratings. It was always doing really well in the ratings. I don't remember exactly what the ratings were. I'm not going to make them up. So, um it was doing well. And then it was clear like then folks were sending people to me. They're like, "Yo, you need to check out this artist. You need to check out this artist. You need to check out this artist." Those artists were Kendra the Family Soul, Jill Scott, Music Soul Child. Um his is uh his story on my show is the one that that's when i really knew people are really checking for the show so uh his managers mike mcarthur and jay hips handed me a cassette tape 
with just friends on it. And they say, hey, we got a new artist. He's from Philly. You know, we got his song on the Nutty Professor soundtrack. You should check it out. I said, oh, okay, sure, no problem. I heard. I said, oh, yes, I'll play it this Sunday. Um, not a problem. <laughs> like, I didn't even get through the whole song. I was like, already, already, this is a vibe. This is a whole vibe. Uh, those aren't the words I used back then, but in now time, it's a whole vibe. Um, so at 9.20, that's when I would debut, like, the new local artist music. So I played that song at 9.20. The next day, um, our PD, our uh, program director, was Golden Boy, who was also the afternoon guy. He said, Tiff, what was that song you played last night at 9.20? I said, he's a new artist from Philly called Music. He said, I need you to give me that song. We've had so many calls for it this morning. We're putting it in rotation this week. Music went right from my show into regular Power 99 rotation that week. Tiffany Bacon's radio show helped introduce to the world many of the artists you would see at Black Lily. Through her show, she was effectively able to bottle up some of the energy of what you'd experience at Black Lily on a Tuesday night and introduce it to a wider audience. In the same year that her show launched, Something else was brewing. The internet. Now, it's not what we might see today when we think of the internet, but the seeds were being planted for how communities could be fostered digitally and new ways of sharing music. In 1999, when The Roots released their fourth studio album, Things Fall Apart, to much acclaim and commercial success, the music industry and listeners began taking notice to the band on a larger scale. About a week after the release of Things Fall Apart, the Roots launched OKPlayer.com. It was meant to operate as the band's website and help them connect with fans and serve as the 1999 version of an Instagram story with daily updates. And again, we have to remember, it's 1999, so it's not totally common for a band to have a website just yet. And someone had already taken the Roots.com, so OKPlayer, okay a phrase commonly used by Philadelphians, became the ideal option. OK Player would help usher in a new era of social interaction via the internet and change the landscape of music journalism and online communities. So to learn more about the story of OK Player, I got a chance to speak with Angela Nissel. She co-founded the website with Questlove. She's also an author, TV writer, and has written for shows like Scrubs, The Boondocks, and Mixed Dish. We talked about what the internet was like in the late 90s, being in Philly around the time of Black Lily, and a bunch more. I'm Angela. I founded OK Player, co-founded, oh, don't let Amir Questlove hear me say that. I co-founded OK Player back with Questlove in 1999, um, author of two, soon to be three books, and let's see what else. I like dogs, and I write for a lot of TV. been doing that for 19 years now. I was, he had just graduated high school and I was like, I think maybe 10th or 11th grade. And I started working at a place called RMH Telemarketing, where you could make up to like $120 a week selling accidental death and dismemberment insurance over the phone to old people. <laughs> so 
he was there to get his demo tape, money for his demo. I was sitting next to him just trying to get like money for the cutest sneaker. And he told, we just became friends. He told me I should go to, um, my mom was like, I can't afford this private school no more. They're not giving you a scholarship out on the main line. So <laughs> he was like, you should go to Creative Performing Arts. And I went there and Boys and Men shot a video and I got jumped. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was right in the project. Like it was literally like, you should, again, you should have security if you're putting large groups of people together. But anyway, so then we just stayed friends for a long time after we stopped selling insurance together. I never thought that I would, it's so funny, at the beginning of something, you don't really know you're at the beginning of it and you don't know how far it could go because in 1999, not even everyone knew what the hell the internet was. Like, and, and it was very, most people thought it was AOL and that's it. So I know Amir Questlove has always wanted to be a nerd and if he wasn't doing drums, he would probably be like a computer programmer or something. But his ass put www.okplayer.com on the back of Things Fall Apart CD. Then calls me and says, um, you know, there's nothing on this site. I just put it on there. And because someone had already taken claim to the roots.com. I was like, and so he said, Andrew, we're going on tour. Seems like this album is going to be a big hit. I know you know this nerd stuff. Please, here's the key to my house. Go in. <laughs> and so I was like, I had I quit my job that I had, no guarantee of pay, and tried to, this is another thing we did wrong back then, we tried to, the internet, there was no video. If there was video, you would literally have to be like, all right, I'm going on a hike, and when I come back, there'll be two minutes of video coming through. <laughs> so I, because we didn't know what we were doing, I tried to do it all at the beginning, and we didn't know how big it was going to be. Like. When you start a website, there's customer service, there's bills. You got to make sure you have the big enough server. So we slowly, after people were like, damn, these graphics suck because I'm not a graphics person. <laughs> we slowly started hiring other people. But God, the internet to me was just a, the biggest thing in social media was message boards. And you got to judge people by how well they typed and whether they could spell not whether they were cute. Like now, <laughs> we didn't have thirst traps. You literally had to like, it was like the inter the early days of when people used to put personal ads in the paper. Like that's your thirst trap. You'd be like, yeah, I look like this. <laughs> it's funny because I never knew that I have what people now recognize as a very silly sense of humor. <laughs> like, like it's, it's so like my brother recently heard me Sorry, if you have to beat this, call somebody a dickhead. And he's like, that's so silly. And the way we say it, and I, I didn't even realize that. But it's, there's like, it's a lot of comedy, but couched in hard truth. Like, you know, it's, it's like, if you call somebody a dickhead, they deserve it. And everyone around you usually knows they deserve it. So Amir and Tariq, we all kind of have the same tone. So they gave me the freedom to, what's so funny is I'm just like, God, I totally forgot the question was, so I'm thinking about whether I offended someone by saying dickhead. But <laughs> but okay, this is what I was gonna say, is that they kind of gave me the freedom because they knew that I spoke the same language and that anything I said would be something that they would approve of, even if I had to kind of explain to them. 
Like, this is why we're doing it. We're building a community. Like, once you have people that hold on to you and believe in what you say, if you keep doing that they'll and you let them know you care about them, they'll never let you go. So it was very much them just saying, Angela, do what you do. And I got to make jokes and even talk about them on the front page. <laughs> make fun of what they were wearing. Common's, uh, what do you call it? His, I call it his Hawaiian dressing days. Because <laughs> And they just trusted me. And I think it helped people feel closer to them because at times they weren't only my friends. I was working with them and you always get frustrated with people you work on and they would allow me to take it out on them. And I think they became less of these big superstars of people and more like, hey, they're my buddies I can pile around with too. Two people who were on the board. The only person who completely trusted the internet at that point was Questlove. He was the only one who was gung-ho. And so I think there's two sides to what it was like to have a website where the members of the band just will tell you and curse you out or give you props on something you personally did, meaning the people on the website. I think there was the behind the scenes pull that a lot of people didn't see where I was like, like, this is bullshit, this internet's not going anywhere. And I would be like, just trust me, trust me, you know, it is some, then it was because they're actually really cool people who like feedback. It became this weird addiction where at times I would have to have their manager come to me and be like, and get them off the board. We have a show, we have to do this, we have to do that. So it was like seeing kids with their first toy that moves on its own or something. It was like them seeing that I could put something out there and it keeps going and keeps going without a record label involved or any PR person saying anything. It was just, it was refreshing to them. The Roots, there was a member called Scratch at the time, and they had a Roots house. Like, it was Scratch lived downstairs, Amir lived upstairs. Other people just would happen to live there. Sometimes you would run into people in the kitchen. And Amir really, once this album, Things Fall Apart, took off, he really was like, Ange, go in my bedroom. Do what you think needs to be done. I was like, can I go in your sock drawer? Yeah. Can I go in anything? So what happens with artists, I find, and everyday people, just like growing up in Philly, we don't think the Liberty Bell, Bell is that special. Like, why would you lay around to, why would you stand in line to see this, you know? So for Amir, he had already amassed a half his lifetime worth of dope things I could scan and take pictures of that he didn't even realize people would like to see. So I'm like, it's cheap. We can be in your bedroom. You've got a good internet hookup. And I think he was away for tour, on tour for the first two weeks. And I literally just scanned things I found in his bedroom and didn't ask him permission for it. Then once he got the hang of like, people really like this dumb stuff to him, he was <laughs> the one like shoving. And again, this is early days internet where he gave me pictures. I had to put them on <laughs> and get them scanned in. And it would take like an hour for maybe five pictures. And so he started digging up more things and thinking of things that people would like to see, like prank calling <laughs> some of his friends who didn't always like that, but. <laughs> I even invited, I remember inviting Malik B into his bedroom because I had nothing else because they were gone. And he called me up like, do you just have other people in my bedroom? I'm like, that's where we work. <laughs> I think people at the very early stages, because even I had to hire a guy named Doug from Canada to help me with some of the stuff. And I mean, because of course management is going to be like, 
this costs money. We better put up a store and put up all this stuff. And I remember someone commenting <laughs> that the store on OK Player where we sold t-shirts looked like it was run out of someone's bedroom because it literally was because I put the shirt on the bed and then carefully used Photoshop to cross out the outline. <laughs> so people, and I would tell people straight up, like, look, I'm sorry if we don't get back to your email for 14 days because you lost your password. It's just me and another guy named Doug. So I think that that might have been where things like Twitter and Facebook can feel like you're never going to talk to Mark Zuckerberg. I think being honest about how much we didn't know and couldn't do made people feel like they were in it with us. It's so funny because I'm like, Tom lives on. For When you first start in a community, any place, you want to feel like you'll know at least someone and everybody had Tom, you know? So it's like that, that joining a virtual space, for me, even when I leave Twitter for a while and come back on, I'm intimidated. Like I'm walking to a room full of people that I don't know. So for me, having a consistent feel to the site and having people have humans that they could reach out to if something went wrong is such a big deal. Like you're not going to have a club without bouncers and cashiers. You shouldn't have a website without people that get together to sort other things out or people are going to start hating you and quitting you. This is so funny because this is right now people want a freestyle battle. You can just hold your phone up and freestyle battle. Back then it would literally be people like Fonte and other people typing out their battle rhymes. <laughs> it's like literally typing. It's like and you would have to imagine in your head who would sound and you would vote for him. We had a whole board dedicated to that. And so Fonte, I remember when he was like, they were sending files back and forth, but who knew, who knows how long that took back then? Like, <laughs> it was like the only thing we have was real player and he, again, he's sitting there forever. But there's, one of the other things is that Amir wasn't afraid to take chances on people from the board. Like, what has become <laughs> people now sending you their SoundCloud and like spamming it? We had everything right there. And if he saw something he liked, he'd be like, come to the show. You can open up or you can. So he actively facilitated that. I think that it's something about like, okay, let's say with Twitter, I jump on, I don't know who's the first person I'm going to see in my feed, whether I agree with them, whether it's somebody else between them. But okay, player, I think, and with a lot of music, especially the roots you know automatically that you have something in common with that person. So like, <laughs> Fonte and Nikolai were probably like, they already knew they had something and they knew they weren't gonna come on the board and hear, for example, white supremacist stuff, <laughs> you know, because it's the root board. So there was a level of trust that I think people had automatically joining the board that we have something in common, which I missed. You know, and there were still like trolls and there were still, it's so funny because people would come in all the time just wanting a reaction like, this song is stupid, you know, but it's always like, it was very controlled and most, both of you and I sound like the old people who are like, God damn it, it was better when we didn't have animated gifts. Like, <laughs> but it, it, there was something to that and I still think that if we curate our own online life, which is really hard, we can get a semblance of that. But back then it wasn't like, right now I feel like, oh God, if I unfollow this person because they've gone crazy, they might actually stab me in real life. Like, <laughs> I felt like people would have my back before an okay player if someone tried to stab me. I could literally type out, stab, and somebody would come over. Because we met in person all the time. You know, we, there was no fear and people thought we were nerds and crazy. 
I guess, you know what's so funny? Now that I think back, I think I was stuck in Amir's bedroom for so long. Part of me was like, these people are really cool and I don't have any friends because I'm in Amir's bedroom for 12 hours. I want to meet them. So I think it was a selfish thing on my part because I remember their manager, Sean, rightfully so being like, what about insurance? And oh, someone gets hurt, you know? <laughs> someone could be suicide at the Ruth picnic, you know? So I think it was very just Amir and I slowly saying, hey, want to come to the studio? Want to, you know, <laughs> and, until it built up and someone outside of OK Player kind of was like, let's all get together. And we did it in Philly first, and other people had their own get-togethers, which, again, Sean, would, the manager, would be very happy, happy for. <laughs> they just did it on their own. But, man, we I remember the first Philly one, and people just decided they were going to rent rooms and all come down and meet each other. And it was actually... It was actually very fun. And another thing I think, and stop me if I'm talking too much, is back then it took a lot to, sometimes I'll meet people now from online and I'm like, oh, your personality is curated. Like you're nothing like this in real life. Back then the way that the people from OK Player typed was exactly, it wasn't like anybody's trying to get a deal or everyone's trying to get their followers up. There were no followers. So people were exactly who they seemed to be online. And it was just, I don't know, something I've been to with that many strangers that everyone kind of felt a level of comfort. Nothing was super organized. I remember <laughs> there was like a kid who had just turned 18, didn't know anybody, he had flew in. And so people, some people just took him around. It was, I bought um, Aaron Magruder out to meet people and people were like, well, I get to meet Aaron Magruder. <laughs> and so it was, it, was, um, it was like the biggest, kickback or just like your aunt calling you up and being like we're having a backyard party <laughs> and some people play dice and some people just listen to music wait i i do remember i do remember one time i got the women together from new york and philly and um <laughs> this was not a good idea we all decided to go to have a spa day together and um that lady you could tell she did not need 20 black girls in her spa at once <laughs> <laughs> she kept coming out like, can you be quiet? Can you be quiet? So that, was, <laughs> that was, I think, the very first. I still have a picture of that. <laughs> can you be quiet? Someone's getting whacked. Can you be quiet? <laughs> that was my bad, lady. <laughs> I remember asking, because I met Aaron through another mutual friend. And I remember telling Aaron, we should put your comic strip on the front page of OK Player before the Daily News. And he let us do it. And so, God. And then he, he did the drawings for my first book, The Broke Diaries. Like, if you look at it, you can automatically tell it's him. So then once we got out to, once I got out to LA, I was working on TV. And then I think just he needed someone for the last season. And People are, some people think just like, how did this Angela Nissel get hired? I'm like, that's 20 years. And Aaron himself reached out to me to come join the show. It was like a full circle. I always say that I was born, I was born too early because by the time all these people were getting deals linked into like, oh my God, they have a huge following. It had become the YouTube age where people could actually show and not just Let's be honest, even in entertainment, people want to watch, ask people, you want to watch TV or read a script of TV? <laughs> it's, it's, people are going, I'll take the watch. So before I had even worked with OK Player, I had put up a bunch of short stories called Broke Diaries on my 
you can pay. Someone said you can. And back then, people like I would put like a curse or two in, and people were like, "You're never going to get a job. You're embarrassing black people." <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh, now look at the internet. <laughs> Why are you telling people you're broke?" So I always knew I wanted to tell stories, and it was after I started OK Player where I realized there's no such thing as writer's block. If I'm have to be in here and make something up about these guys every day, <laughs> like I'm literally going to be like the most boring thing but there's something that something can be written every day and it kind of got me into the habit of writing which I really needed to be out here but I always wanted to use some people say I had the first blog with the broke diaries which was on new pen page if you go back on archive I'm sure you'll see some embarrassing stuff but I had always wanted to write before okay player and so I think having something it's hard to write about the same guys every day too so <laughs> That's the biggest skill that I think crosses over. Also, when you have a big audience like that, learning different people's personalities, people are giving you free character studies all the time. So I got a lot, a lot of that from the board and some friendships that are still 20 years old. With Angela and Questlove creating OK Player, they created a digital space, one of the first social media sites. And it was four years before MySpace, five years before Facebook, and seven years before Twitter. Their site helped connect artists like Fonte from North Carolina and Nicolet from the Netherlands, and they go on to create the group The Foreign Exchange. They even gave space for young cartoonist and writer Aaron McRuder, who would go on to create the animated series The Boondocks. While this period proved to be a launching pad for many, it also meant that many of the artists that came through Black Lily were also being pulled in many other directions. In Neo Soul, the once fleetingly defined term used by record executives had made its way into the mainstream and everyone wanted to get a hold of it, leaving Black Lily in a precarious position. The reason why we didn't continue beyond 2005 is you know, sort of one that we did self-fund this whole thing, you know, after that initial 50,000 ran out, which was like early on in that first year, um, the way we kept it going is by literally like we were funding this. And even if, you know, a Tuesday night happened and there weren't that many people there and we didn't make the money, we still had to pay these musicians. And so we were basically... And there and wasn't we were doing much money it, anyway, so we were still right, five dollars, right. so, ten dollars. You know, tonight. we're doing like, it out it of pocket like... at this point, and um, you know, people get used to anything, I believe, and it sort of became a point to where it's like, oh, it's Tuesday night, and maybe we'll go to Black Lily, maybe we won't, you know, um, because you know, you figure I'll just catch it the next Tuesday. So then after a while, it was just like the crowds mm -hmm. seem to be getting smaller and smaller, but yet we're having to put out the same output in order to, you know, put on this show that we were putting on. And so eventually show, we just yeah. came to the decision that it just was financially no longer made sense for us. And it also sort of um, dovetailed with the fact that the various groups and artists that had started there were sort of, you know, they're careers were starting to blossom. 
I felt the palpable shift uh, towards the last year. The crowd was waning. The caliber of talent was not on par for our usual because everybody was touring. Everybody. Either they were touring or they were working on their album, what have you, and not locally. Because before, everybody working on their album were doing it right down the street at Larry Gold Studio or the Root Studio. That building called the studio. And that's another thing. If they weren't doing a show and coming to the Lily after their show, like Floetry, they were in between recording their album and they did the, uh, the Lily. They, were, they literally built their first album off of their performances at the Lily. Literally. Literally. You know, me and Tone and um, Yamin, we discovered them and brought them up from Atlanta. You know what I mean? Outfit them with their production crew. And next thing you know, they they blown. It was, it became more open mic than featured. Because of that, you know, the, like I said, the crowd waned, became sparse and sporadic. You know, one week, say in, uh, in January, you know, 2003, the first week is slamming because it's New Year slamming. Everybody trying to get on the stage and whoever's in town, we're doing it. Eric Trebet and, you know, whoever he's playing for, he brought them through. Vivian Green, he's, you know, like Floetry might be, you know, finishing up some rough edges or whatever about the hit day tour and they want to get something in before they go out or whatever. So that show, that first week show, that first Tuesday in January 2003 might have been slamming. Chock full, pack everybody. Hey, you, you call their peoples. They somewhere else, but now they coming to the lily. You know, second week, everybody half the people that featured are now on tour. The other half, they not trying to do a full set. They might do one or two songs. So now I got to fill in as a host. You're also the producer. You know what I'm saying of an underground show or nonprofit or on your own or you know what I mean show. You know what I mean. You're also part of uh, the production crew because you literally have to produce the show as you go along. You're directing the show as the host. You're directing the artists. You're directing the house band. You're directing the crowd. You're directing the security and the bar staff. You feel me? I'm serious. I created so many signature drinks. I, I was talking to one of our bartenders a couple of weeks ago. I was like, damn, dude, you know, if we patented that shit, how much money we have made by now? You've heard of the drink, the pink pussy. It has so many variations, bro. It started at the Black Lily. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But in those times that the, the crowd is sparse or we have more open mic than feature, that's when I have to step up a little bit more as a host and find creativity in the crowd. Once people are on the road promoting their own projects, once the musicians are all out on tour with their own projects or on tour with other people, who keeps it going? You know, and how do you do that over the long haul? And as people got famous, as people got signed to deals and were busy working on their own projects and, you know, everybody's stock goes up in that respect, then you have the Love Jones generation. So this goes back to what I said to you earlier. <laughs> the Love Jones generation who only got interested in poetry because it was a really cool movie with beautiful black people. All right. So now, now if I want you know, if I want some ass, I'm going to write a poem because that's the cool thing to do. Uh, 
So you have Love Jones inspired poetry. You have people who are not interested in coming to Black Lily to workshop something new and different and upcoming. They're coming because they heard Janet Jackson stop through while she was doing her main, you know, she stopped through Black Lily after she did her stadium show. That puppy came and was chilling in the audience. Oh, word? Then not only am I going to just show up because I hear that's the vibe, but I'm going to uproot myself from wherever I lived before. And now I'm moving to Philly because this is a place where I can get put on. All the folks who were initially on the scene in Philly, they were making it. They were national. They were on tour for like years and years and years. So they weren't around. You know, um, there's other artists, you know, still focused on other artists. There were new people coming up, you know, the second wave or what have you. But then venues started to close. I have to look up what was happening in the city, but there were changes in the city happening too. Venues were closing. As venues closed, there were fewer and fewer places for musicians to play. And of course, the big one was the Lily was like, okay, we're done. We're going to be done. And it was like, wow. Not long after we're done, the building catches on fire. And it's completely done. Like, ain't no revitalizing the Lily at the five spot. There is no five spot. Thank you. We'll see you then. A popular nightclub is destroyed by fire today. The Five Spot in Old Philadelphia is a legendary club that drew well-known musicians and tourists for years. NBC 10's Justin Peasy live in Old City now with all the details. Justin. Lauren, this fire started at 9.30 this morning and there is still smoke rising from the rubble at this hour. Firefighters say the building will have to be demolished after this big fire, but not until they're done putting out hot spots. Smoke concealed the sun at times in Old City. The smoke was so thick. For hours, thick, dark smoke poured from windows of the Five Spot, an Old City bar, restaurant, and small concert venue. I'm very, very sad for them because it's one of the best spots here. From our in some ways, the flames that engulfed the Five Spot marked the end of an era. Today, where the Five Spot once stood is unrecognizable. But the artists that passed through the Five Spot left an indelible mark on the city and music that has reverberated across time and space. To this day, Philadelphia still has a vibrant community of artists and musicians with several live music venues around the city. One of the artists that's been critical to the live music community is Bernard Trey Lambert. I've known Trey since elementary school and for as long as I've known him, he's been playing drums. When thinking about the seeds that Black Lily planted, there's no more perfect person than Trey. And if you're in Philadelphia on a Friday or Saturday night, you'll more than likely hear Trey's drums. You ready? Let's go. Seeing a text from you last night Something told me this would be the last My name is Bernard Trey Lambert, two-time Grammy award-winning drummer from North Philadelphia, who is the founder and creator of the On The One Nation brand. Uh, I'm a drummer for some of your favorite artists, uh, such as Future Meek Mills, uh, B.B. Rexa, Zaytoven. Um, I play for some of Philly's greats, as far as Marsha Ambrosius, um, Floetry, Jasmine Sullivan. Um, I played for Ty Trippett and GA for a long time. Uh, well, just Ty Trippett at the time. 
Yeah, I have my own band, Treyway and Now Generation, where I'm the drummer and lead singer of the band, and we from Philadelphia. Um, I was three years old when I started playing drums uh, in church. Well, my whole family is like musically inclined. Um, so yeah, I was definitely banging on pans and all of that stuff, but it was really just me following my mom and my dad around like different church concerts and stuff like that. Like, so it kind of like influenced me in a lot of ways in that area. And then, yeah, you know, banging on stuff was always a thing with drumming. You know, we always tapping around on the pots or the tables and all of that. And so my grandpa, he was big on uh, thrifting and he got a kit for me. And uh, yeah, that started from that. And then my dad's dad, my, my other grandfather, he brought a kit for me as well down in Virginia. And the rest was history. Coming up, man, um, I, I could say Soundcheck. Soundcheck was the band for GA. Uh, my uncle, um, who, who was a keyboard player uh, at the church. Um, my, my other uncle, Kevin Pringle, he was a big influence in my musical like upbringing, um, just loving music as a whole. Of course, you got Philly natives such as Brian Frazier Moore, Lil John Roberts, the Spankies, Daryl's Boots, um, you know, all of them. Like that was, you know, that's Philly, of course. So that was definitely my upbringing in the roots, man. I'm big on uh, the band. I'm not really big on just, you know, just drummers really influencing me. Um, so I was definitely big on Fatback Taffy, who was Joe Scott's band at the time. And they had, you know, Eric Trippett, who was somebody that basically introduced me to the Neo Soul world. Um, he was the drummer at the time, my uncle Jeff Bradshaw, uh, Thaddeus Trippett, who was the bass player. Um, yeah, uh, Clay Sayers, man, Adam Blackstone, Omar Edwards, Jamar Jones. Uh, yeah, man, Aaron Draper, Wayne on bass. Uh, Full Memorial was a big, a big influence in my life uh, as far as church. Um, I used to sit under them every Sunday as a kid and just watch them play and stuff like that. So that was definitely something where, you know, I was definitely inspired every every week. Yeah, I actually went to the Black Lily a couple of times. My mom used to take me there when I was a kid. Um, it, was, it was between the Black Lily, which was at the five spot, or it was Zanzibar Blue, which was on Broad Street. And uh, my Uncle Jeff and uh, a couple of like members from Soundcheck and stuff, they would always play at Zanzibar Blue. So I would always go down there and hang out there um and the five spot man that was just the it place like that was the spot where everybody was created and that's like that's how crazy like god is because i was there at like eight and nine years old you know what i'm saying like watching all of this stuff unfold and, and it was a, a young jasmine sullivan in there or it was a it was a, a duo group from london in there which was flow tree or you know it was glenn lewis coming from canada you know what i'm saying it was the roots in there you had you had like different musicians and different producers that was in there and that during that time that was you know in that that melting pot for, for jill scott and, and and music soul child and all of this stuff that like you know made philly a thing made soul a thing and so like i was just there i was in the mix i was young i was drinking my shirley temples and um i was actually i was playing with a band at the time called bohemian fifth and they were um like they had like a house band that they was in and I would go there and I would sit in sometimes and play there at the five spot. So it was definitely it was definitely something where I know for myself in the band, like it's something that I'm I'm going to recreate and I'm gonna bring back to the city. You know, due to COVID, you can't really do too much, but 
Um, I definitely, that's something that I'm, I'm aiming towards and I've been in the works with a lot of uh, promoters and a lot of musicians and artists, um, not just in Philadelphia, but you know, just all over, just letting them know like, like I'm bringing that wave back, that feel good music, because right now there's not really a lot of felt music. Like you can't really feel what's going on. Like it's rare. And if you do feel it, it's probably like an underground artist or somebody that you really don't really hear too much about like that. But back in the day, man, like Philly, that's what we was based off of. We was based off of bands, we was based off of horns, we was based off of, you know, just feeling good and just going up on stage and just bobbing. Like it wasn't no, wasn't no order. It wasn't no like set schedule. Like people was just walking up, rocking out. At its core, this project is about genealogy, the connectedness across time and sound in black music traditions, how each generation prepares for the next. Trey's time of quote-unquote sitting under someone and learning from older musicians is but one example of this connection and how he is now in a position of preparing the way for others. To close, I reached out to Jasmine Johnson. She's an artist, writer, professor, and poet from Philadelphia. I've also known her since elementary school, and she very much follows in the tradition of those before her and the community of poets that have been discussed during this series. We had a wide-ranging conversation, but she helped put in perspective what Black Lily means as a Black space, as a sacred space, and as a communal space. So to me, um, what blackness, black study, or I think black radical thought uh, forces us to do is to contend with what both of those things mean. What does it mean to be an object and what does it mean to be a human? Um, and what does it mean to be neither? And then perhaps that's where blackness is running off to. Um, and it's in its constant escape that perhaps, you know, um, what, what, what defines a human or what makes a human, I've already been taken so far away from or that I felt so more then, you know. Um, I know what it means to feel monstrous, you know. I know also what it means to feel, you know, from out of this world while also in the world at the same time. Um, and I know what it means to feel less than the world, you know, an object, and almost an inanimate object, right? So bringing this all the way to black music <laughs> in terms of its racial, um, that, that yes, it has everything to do with the racial, racial folk of its name, right? The black people. Uh, also, it has something to do with um, blackness having made an escape from even its racial um, captivity or its more visceral um, captivity and it, that escape is made because of its context, because of the context of being taken away from all of these or being prescribed and then taken away from all of these identities of being human. Um, and then realizing, you know, but you need a slave to be human, you know, um, or you know, being an object and being like, you know, um, having to escape from that um, by way of your interiority. And so I think for me, black music and black sound is it is it's, it's, it's this escape that you can hear um, happening constantly throughout music. Um, it's this. Um, it's breaking. Like, you know, um, after church, when the band does the shed 
or whatever. <laughs> I think it's called shreds. I don't know. But when it start just improvising, um, that is a break from, okay, we're not composing. Nobody's jotting. Nobody's, like, making a sound and then writing it down, right? Um, so it kind of leaves the, cate- the, the category of, like, you know, um, structured composition. Um, but also it lends itself to this kind of improv where you're all making sounds and making, you know, decisions together um, and alternating almost. Like my favorite one to watch is probably Todd Trippett that um, I keep going back to that one because there's so many decisions being made and so many solos taking place and I have no idea how the decision is. It, it can be a look. Y'all, you know, the band has this way of signaling. Um, but it's often, okay, we're leaving kind of whatever space we're in and now we're all kind of taking flight um that this is not often even after church when you just hear the band playing and just making these decisions it's kind of it's kind of like um it's not really for the church anymore you know (laughs) folks are leaving some people are packing up some conversations are happening so it's not really a performance to give to an audience right um and it's not also one to make a song in the future necessarily. So then what, ha- what is taking place there? You know, there's an escape happening there from, in terms of performance alone. And I think that like, even when composed black music is often making these decisions, like even when John Coltrane um, composed Giant Steps in such a meticulous way, um, there's a decision between, okay, I'm going to use the scale that jazz that, that makes jazz sound, but I'm just gonna flip it a little bit, you know. <laughs> I'm gonna make an inscape there. Um, so it is jazz, but it's also breaking jazz, you know, um, kind of disrupting jazz. Um, so I think that black music, in terms of genres and what it does with forms, is it's constantly breaking form. Um, and so if it's constantly doing that, then there's no way that any of us can sit here and try to capture blackness i mean that's that's ultimately what we don't want right <laughs> like isn't that what you know isn't that what you know every abolitionist doesn't want isn't this what every um activist doesn't want any uh real critical thinker um or critical theorist within um, black studies doesn't want for blackness to be able to be captured or to be you know say this is what is black and this is what is not it, it's just impossible to do so i think that black music within itself is a sound that when you hear it you hear an escape constantly being made, a flight constantly being taken in multiple directions. It can be even nostalgic, right? So some people may say, you know, this is like 90s rap, you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, and, it, it, and then even in that context, an escape from, you know, what we may say contemporary, um, contemporary temporality is, right? It can be escaping to the past. It can be escaping to the future. It can be escaping south. So it's hard to to manage blackness and I refuse to capture it. The Black Lily may have formally ended over a decade ago, but their influence carries on. Their time at the five spot was a period of planting and watering seeds yet to be seen. The seeds are someone like a young Robert Glasper who boarded a charter bus on Tuesdays with Bilal to come to Philadelphia from New York just to try to get a glimpse of the sound. It's a 13-year-old Jasmine Sullivan who technically wasn't old enough to be on stage that now carries the torch for a tradition of gospel and soul singers like only she can. It's Adam Blackstone, a bassist, who's become the music director for some of the biggest names in music, 
and a mainstay on the biggest stages. But before all of that, he was a member of the band for the Jazzy Fan Nasties, rocking at the five spot. And it's the countless number of artists and producers and musicians from around the world that count Black Lily alums as their inspiration. From Robert Glasper, Ari Lennox and her, to Kendrick Lamar, Leanne LaHavis and Moses Sumney, we can see the seeds planted and the flowers continuing to bloom. This has been The Seeds of Black Lily, an audio documentary exploring Philadelphia and Black music at the turn of the century. To learn more about this episode, you can visit 808sandjazzbreaks.com. And if you've enjoyed this series and you deem it worthy, please leave us a review and pass the show along to a friend. This podcast was written, produced, and edited by me, Stanley Collins. This episode was engineered by Jimmy Goodman of Leopard Studio. Original music by Soul Surplus. And funding for this project was made possible by the Black Music City Grant and Rec Philly. Special thanks to Mike D and Daryl DeBrest for granting access to their video archive. Also special thanks to Dev Ski Worldwide for granting access to his video archive. And thanks to Tiffany Bacon, Angela Nissel, Trey Lambert, and Jasmine Johnson for their generosity and willingness to share. Also wanted to thank the Jazzy Fat Nasties, Tracy Moore and Mercedes Martinez. A special thanks to Lady Alma, Stephanie Renee, Keith Pelzer, D. River Parker, Paris Bowens, Larry Lambert, Dr. Claudrina Harold, Dr. Philip Lamar Cunningham, and Jimmy Goodman. And thank you for listening. Until next time.